Hi everyone, welcome to another fireside chat. This is your sacred space to share your story, your wisdom, practice authenticity, embrace vulnerability, and to be with truth. And I have my dear friend Steve here and my favorite meditation teacher of all time. Thank you for being with us, Steve. Great to have you again. Thank you, Susan. It's nice to be here. This is your second time. Um, I mean, I really want to dive deeper into your story this time because last time it was the beginning of our group where we launched the meditation challenge and uh, you've been a great anchor on the first round of the meditation and we talked about a lot of concepts about awakening meditation. But this time round, I really want to know about your journey with meditation and the meditation discipline that you have chosen to practice. I find it super interesting. And I feel like I'm really aligned with what you're doing. And I catch your Facebook lives where you just sit in silence. This is super cool. Where, before we dive into your story, where, how did you come up with this idea? I think it's the best idea ever I've seen on social media. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, on my, um, I live stream on YouTube and Facebook, um, Silent Sitting. And it's really, it's part of my own personal practice. How it started was, um, I was uh, it was the summertime and I was just doing a lot of meditation. I was here on the boat. Uh, this is where I come when I'm, well, either in a sort of apocalyptic, apocalyptic pandemic, <laughs> it's where I come here, like now, or uh, usually I'm here between work trips and so on. So I have a lot more time for, you know, practice and stuff like that. So I was doing a lot of practice over that summer. And I thought it would be interesting to experiment with just live streaming some of the sits that I was doing. And no instructions, not giving a guided meditation or doing any kind of describing meditation or talking about meditation, just sitting there. So I did started doing that. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be weird or interesting or both. <laughs> you know, it's kind of strange, but um, ended up being very interesting. And people ended up joining in. I write on there that it's when if you see my live stream, it's my invitation to you to sit with me and join in uh, for as little or as long as you like, doing whatever technique you like, because of course I'm not giving any you know, guidance in terms of techniques. So people ended up doing it and people ended up finding, there was still, and I felt it too, this sense of uh, group, you know, more than one person sitting together. It adds a certain kind of support. I love it to think uh, uh, I enjoyed it a lot and I kept going I love it I catch you sometimes and I literally you don't see me of course because you're not you don't obviously you don't see the or other people that join you I'm if I'm working on my desk or if I'm doing something and I catch you I get this notification because Facebook does this clever thing when you follow someone's activity they keep you know telling you what they're up to and you're one of the few people that I get notified on Facebook because of I'm super busy and I'm always, you know, creating content because, you know, being on the other side of the, of, of the, you know, coin, I'm always creating. So I, I have a very little time following my favorite people on Facebook. Unfortunately, the time doesn't allow so much, but you're one of those people that I always get notified. And as soon as I see a notification, Steve is live. I know it's for meditation and it's a beautiful invitation. I stop everything and I literally join. Wow. I I join, I close my eyes wherever I am. Like you said, you don't give instructions and this is what I resonate with. Again, as you know, this group in the meditation challenge group, we meditate in silence and we and and I make sure we don't have rules, no instructions, and it's about just sitting silently with ourselves and just kind of reflecting and just kind of focusing on the breath. That really resonates with me. And like I say, you know, I catch you and I literally, if I'm on the chair, I just close my eyes. If I'm on the floor, if even like I, I could be driving, not that I check my phone on driving, but I can literally just tune into that silence, not necessarily, you know, make it a big chore of, oh, you know, I've got to kind of uh, prepare myself for this meditation. It's not about that. And this is what I love. Literally tuning in any given time any moment it's there and it's available and that's what you provide and i find this super powerful so thank you 
Thank you, Susan. That's that's really wonderful. Yeah, it's super genius. This is like this is how we should be using social media, honestly. Sometimes, you know, we we talk too much, we share too much, and we comment too much, and we argue too much on social media. I think social media should be a medium where we come together and just be in our presence and hold space for us and just just sometimes just stay in silence. And I love that. You're the first person who, you know, initiated that and I love it. So so let's go into your story. I'm really interested in, you're from the UK and if you can give us your um, background, you know, how did you come into the meditation practice and a little bit of your, I know that your coming into the mindfulness space was through a tragic moment. Um, it was a, you know, a, a great initiation actually. So I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah, well, in terms of, I suppose, the meditation biography, um, I think that my two initial meditation starts uh, were, one of them was in martial arts. When I was five, I started attending martial arts classes in the Shetland Islands where I grew up, little islands to the north of Scotland. And uh, there, it was really um quite traditional kind of club and they took it very seriously and I fell in love with it immediately. I just loved the whole aesthetic of it, you know, when we'd stand and hold out the arm for, you know, it feels like hours, but it's probably just, I don't know, two minutes or something like that. But I, you know, it, your muscles would burn and you'd, you'd sort of really go into the martial arts zone kind of thing. I loved it at that age. And at the end of those classes, we'd always do some meditation. I don't think it was ever called meditation, but whatever we were doing, usually sparring at the end of the class or something like this, something vigorous, um, suddenly the instructor would say seiza, which is the Japanese word for kneeling. It's also meditation posture. Sometimes people meditate in kneeling posture. And we'd go down to kneel and we'd be still there. And sometimes no instructions. Sometimes we'd have instructions to do with breath control, slowing the breath. At that time, of course, you really want to take a lot of oxygen in. So the muscles are burning, the lungs are burning, and you really want to take an oxygen. But he'd tell us to have slow breathing and so on, and to feel the feeling of the oxygen debt, and to differentiate how much of the breathing was to replenish the oxygen, and how much of the breathing was kind of a oh, soothing oneself. Oh, you know, I don't have to do anything now. Take deep breaths. So it's quite nuanced, nuanced instruction, I think. Uh, we did various other things at, uh, along those lines. So that was my first, uh, I would say, proper meditation, although I don't think it was ever called meditation. It was never, okay, now here we're going to meditate. Uh, I think everyone knows that martial arts and meditation-y, spiritual-y sorts of things, there is a big overlap. I think people know that, um, th that there's an overlap there. So naturally, as I was super obsessed with martial arts, I was reading all the kind of books I could get a hold of, it was natural then to look at through things like Bruce Lee's Tao of Jeet Kune Do, you start to investigate some basic Taoism and so on. Of course, I was doing karate. It's not long before you discover about Zen and you start reading about these things really from a martial arts um, lens. Also, at that time, same age, I think, I became an altar boy and I was uh, in a Catholic kind of context. And I would say... When I, the reason I say Catholic context is because my mother had this idea of a private faith, a personal faith, or a quiet faith. means that the mass or the ritual, which is where everyone comes together in the church, in Catholic uh, language speak, they call that mass. It's sort of choreographed ritual. And uh, she saw that as a kind of a time for personal, uh, I suppose, spiritual relationship with God or time with yourself, that sort of thing, a personal kind of faith in that sense, as opposed to a religious or doctrinal religious experience. So we weren't really educated very much in the doctrine or didn't ascribe very much to the doctrine of the Catholic um, Church. And when all the children would go out for their catechism, which is what we called the classes the children had to teach them about the religion, we never went. We were never allowed to go. My mother said that anybody who wants to teach catechism probably shouldn't teach catechism 
meaning that it's like that thing they joke about they make about the politicians you know if anyone who wants to become a politician shouldn't become a politician because you know <laughs> who wants that job you know and so um that was uh so i didn't get much of that side of it it was really mainly through the ritual very quiet the priest was very quiet and spiritual man so it was a very deep kind of ritual we did i was the altar boy in the early morning service so there was no singing no guitars no tambourines and that sort of stuff so it was just the liturgy just the ritual and it's the same every time i mean there are different readings and short message from the priest and so on but it's really from the altar boy's point of view you just do the same thing you pick up a candle and you take it over there and then you bring them the cup and they clean the cup and then there's, there's this whole sequence so it was also very i suppose deep you know and then in my teens i was apprenticed to a christian mystic and in that time uh, we did also lots of contemplative things which if we have a broad definition of meditation as of general contemplative activities or then a lot of what we did there would fit and then later on I became interested in, I suppose, more and more interested in uh, what people would think of as really meditation, meditation. You know, I'm not really considering myself to be a Christian uh, anymore and really haven't. Uh, I, I'm not, not a Christian, but it's I'm more sort of generally interested in the field. Not It's not so specific. I appreciate the Christian mystical tradition. But I also appreciate other traditions as well and enjoy them. I don't really belong to any... Um, line in that sense or you know exclusively so uh and then met much lots and lots of you know meditation retreats and things like that you know yoga and stuff so from my main meditation teacher from then i had several godfrey Devereux learned a lot about meditation from him shinzen young has been my main meditation teacher for several years glenn mullen also a significant teacher for me so those are the that, that's a brief kind of a meditation biography <laughs> Amazing. So, so the meditation that you practice, can you just give us a, a quick brief um, overview? What is it that you practice? Like, how do you practice? And, and then we can go into a bit more details after that. Well, one of the things that I really like about meditation is that there are so many different kinds. There's so many different techniques <clears throat> from different traditions and even within the same tradition. Uh, of course, m most meditation techniques do originally come, or well, originally, recently come from religious traditions uh, like Buddhism or like Christianity or Hinduism and things like that. I think people know that that's the case. These religious traditions tend to carry these techniques forward in time. You don't have to be religious to meditate, in my opinion, and you don't have to ascribe to a particular religion to enjoy the contemplative techniques that they offer. Some people would differ in that view, of course. But that's why we see all sorts of people doing meditation. They don't necessarily know the first thing about, say, Buddhism or uh, you know, Christian contemplative stuff or whatever. So uh, I really um, see it as a sort of broad tapestry of means and methods that human race has come up with in our, seems as one of the great hobbies of human beings to figure mm. out all different ways to explore experience and to engage in these contemplative disciplines. Really fascinating. So I've done lots of different kind of techniques and I do different techniques. To narrow it down a bit, when I'm doing the live streams, for example, when I'm sitting there in silence and not giving any there I'm usually, usually doing something like Meditating on the sensations of the body, just relaxing, you know, feeling the body sensations, relaxing, and uh, or maybe concentrating on the breathing and relaxing the body. So there's this combination of alertness uh, or awakeness, and also, but also relaxation. Too much alertness and awakeness, and you get a little bit, you know, like this tense, uh, but too much relaxation, and you slip into dullness. So there's this sort of, sometimes it's, described as a guitar string, right? Too tight, snaps. Too loose, it's no use. But my uh, preferred analogy, and this is a non-traditional analogy, is like a bar of soap in the shower. Squeeze it too tight, pings out. Don't hold it tight enough, it slips out. So it's a sort of like a, this kind of idea of really relaxing without basically falling asleep. <laughs> so that's the, I would say that's the general approach if I was to give it a one-liner. Yeah. I love that. And this has been my favorite 
practice. And, you know, ever since I came into the meditation, awareness of the meditation, um, firstly, um, my meditation journey has been really interesting because I resisted it for a long time. Um, like you said, in the West, you know, in the digital age, now we access to so much, so much, sometimes too much information. Mm. And then I came across this meditation and then, you know, I was following like, oh, there is this meditation. There is this guided one. Oh, there is a, um, I don't know, like um, what they call it now, the abundance meditation. There is um, relaxation or something like that. And I was trying and trying and I was like, okay, this is not for me. Maybe this is not for me. I'm trying too hard because trying too hard is, of course, is the wrong way to, to approach uh, from the beginning. But I generally resisted it until my plant medicine. What do you make of that, Steve? Like I continually said, oh, no, no, I can't focus. My mind is crazy. I've got this thought train. It's too fast. I kind of contain myself sitting down. But then my first psychedelic experience, something changed and shifted in my, my, I don't know what happened to me, but something changed and something cracked open. And I then began or able to just sit with myself for longer periods of time, which I never could have imagined before. It kind of um, introduced me to, okay, this is what meditation is supposed to be. You just, you know, be with yourself. And this is what being yourself looks like, which I'm not used to from previous life experience. And that just began the whole course of, you know, going into more deeper and then it being interested in Vipassana because somehow I'm drawn to just sitting in silence. Um, like you said, especially in the West, you know, there are so many people who are not interested in the traditional religious, like Christian uh, Christian meditation. Christian mysticism is something that I'm really impressed and I, I like a lot, like John Butler, for example, one of my favorite mentors online. He's I follow his videos. Uh, he talks about Christian mysticism and his meditation. I love that. I love Buddhism. I love all of the, like you said, it's a whole, whole... A rainbow of you know practices and approaches to meditation but I always come back to again and again the silent meditation there is something really profound here there is something incredibly interesting just being with ourselves in a space but yeah what are your thoughts on like I know a lot of people say the same with like psychedelics can do that to us in a way unlocks something if you know what I mean yeah, I'm curious which plant medicine it was, and did you do? Was it one journey, or did you do multiple journeys? What was the experience? The first one was a DMT. It's called. Uh, it, it comes from a natural mimosa tree bark, and it was uh, about four hour, nearly four hour journey. That was the one. That was the one. It wasn't ayahuasca. A lot of people say ayahuasca or peyote or or masculine uh, mescaline or um, um, you know psilocybin but mine was with uh, yeah but yeah from the very first experience um in fact during that psychedelic experience i was i was i found myself sitting in just like lotus position just kind of sitting with myself and and this was the message you see this is how you do it look it's almost like showing me look this all you gotta do just sit just sit and breathe so ever since then, I kept doing that. Yeah. Wow. And what do you think it was about that journey that changed? You said it had something to do with you, you had an ongoing stream of thoughts before, and that, that made you yeah. want to meditate. And was that altered somehow after this, this uh, DMT so. journey? Yeah, I think so. I do know now, of course, after years of um, exploring psychedelic space i know that they do they they change this uh, they they kind of create new neural pathways and they 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 have a very powerful way to reconnect us to the parts that don't communicate usually and now they you know i feel more alert more present and i can kind of tap into it by in, you know just through intention which i never was able to do that like it's almost like they turned the switch switch on in a way um, and then now I have this ability that I can just tap into that 
meditative mm. state without too much of um, struggle or trying. Like, do you remember I said earlier, trying hard, trying, trying, but not getting there, but then getting frustrated instead? That completely disappeared after that. And yeah, I kept kind of um, extending the time, started off with 20 minutes and then 30, then, then I actually indulged in the 3 a.m. meditations, which are my favorite. So that was like taking, but each time I felt like I'm going deeper and deeper in the experience and, and deeper in my practice. Then I heard this Rumi's quote about if, you know, don't go back to sleep, the dawn has secrets to tell you. So I thought, okay, let me, let me explore what this is all about. Then I started picking up on the 3 a.m. meditations. Now it became um, very automatic. Like I can just wake up, literally check my time. It's like either 310, 315, 3.20. And it doesn't take much of an effort to just kind of find myself in the meditation, pull on or, or actually tap into that meditative state, even at that time, which is really incredible, I find. And uh, have you had any free AM meditation practice? I'm sure you, you must have explored that space. Yeah, with, um, I mentioned Shinzen Young, one of my main meditation teachers uh, of these last years, and he... Uh, on his retreats does something called yaza yaza is japanese word meaning night sitting uh, often used in the zen tradition and so in those retreats on a thursday night usually it is unless they've changed it lately you go from 10 p.m to 5 in the morning normally you're sitting from 5 30 until 10 you know with breaks and stuff and lunch and things but um that's the general schedule and then for the evening it goes 10 till uh, 5 uh, so I've done quite a bit of night sitting. And just recently, actually, I had an online, uh, we did an online course about um, uh, getting a daily practice and how to get a meditation practice. And, and to, to finish that off, on the full moon, uh, there was a full moon at the beginning of December. I forget the day. It was a Sunday night, though. And we uh, we did a yaza. We sat um, from 10, uh, 10 p.m. till 5 a.m. GMT. And a lot of people, surprisingly, to themselves <laughs> lasted the whole night a lot of people yeah. said, to come for a couple of hours and just try it out and they ended up sitting through it's amazing actually they did so fantastically well so yeah i love i do love night sitting one of the things that getting up in the middle of the night i expect you know this which is so i'm going to ask you about it one of the things that if you get up in the middle of the night and meditate or do anything really and then go back to sleep they in lucid dreaming they call that the wake up go back uh, wake up back to bed technique and uh, apparently it can increase the likelihood of lucid dreaming by something like tenfold. Have you uh, experienced that sort of consequence of your uh, 3 a.m. meditations? Mm. Lucid dreaming is something I'm still not, I haven't got full grasp on. But I know what you mean. I do have dreams that are very realistic. And and I know that the the lucid dreaming is about knowing you're dreaming but then you kind of have some sense of control over what goes on in that dream also which is really interesting like you can actually make decisions um to change the process of, of the unfolding so i don't have too much experience with that i did have few but with the 3 a.m meditations i find that i have increased awareness in my daily life for example it kind of increased my capacity to catch smallest details where I would have been totally oblivious or not paid attention before. Um, it's almost like it highlights it so much that it's, it's impossible to ignore it sometimes. That's what I've noticed. And also, 3AM meditations, the difference between the 3AM meditations and the general meditation for me has been there are times in my 3 a.m. meditations that it is the silence is so deep, almost frightening. And then it also helped me to understand the greater existence in the consciousness. So, which means in simple terms, this life, this organism that I am, Susan, it's it's just part of something bigger beyond me that I don't have the capability or, or the capacity to grasp. 
and this is not about me anymore. So there was a huge detachment. It's kind of helped me also to practice minimalism, a minimalistic lifestyle. It helped me practice, like when, when pandemic kicked off, as you know, people were shopping like crazy, stocking up. I mean, there are, you know, you know about the toilet paper memes, crazy, right? I remember not even moving my finger to do such thing because there was this trust in me that will be fine and I don't need to stock up. That one meal a day is more than enough that I can do this. And um, yeah, it's kind of like I, I lost those scarcity, would you say like scarcity mindset in, um, yeah, it's just like having that trust within. It was really profound actually. So, which means of course helps with anxiety. You're no longer anxious because whatever the future unfolds, you know you're going to be riding the wave and you know that there is a higher power and order that it's bigger than me and my little self, I can fidget and get upset and anxious about what's going to happen, but nothing I can do really. So we're kind of caught up in this shift of consciousness. I mean, pandemic, they say it's, it's the push for a new paradigm shift and that we are going through a collective dark night. Um, and whatever reason we're here, we're here and that's that. So kind of like it's helping me to deal with this uncertainty more in a way, in simple terms. Don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, very interesting. And yeah, so it's all about the detachment. I think meditation for me solely helps me to detach from this, um, making this whole thing about me. I realize each day that it's not about me anymore. This is far beyond my grasp. And it kind of stops me kind of, you know, dealing with trivial and uh, unnecessary. So you cut out all the noise in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has that happened gradually as you've meditated or have there been moments where there have been, if you want, more dramatic or noticeable shifts, watershed moments? Mm, that's a really good question. Absolutely. It's been a compound effect. It's been gradual. So gradually just keep, you know, the commitment to the, to the meditation daily has been a compound effect, actually. So, yeah, I'd go with that. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So how, how, how has meditation changed you? I know we're going to go into your, um, as a meditation teacher, because you run workshops, you travel. I mean, um, when I heard that you did the workshops at Esalen, I was like, oh my God, I want to go there. This is uh, on my bucket list. I really want to go and experience Esalen, uh, workshop, whatever, you know, happens there. It's just one of my yeah, to-do lists on my to-do list. So, yeah, tell us how meditation changed your life or you as a person and your path. Um, well, gosh, I've been doing it and interested in it for most of my life. So it's hard to say. You know, an interesting point about meditation, though, I can give some, I can speculate by all, you know, certainly. The interesting thing about meditation I sometimes wonder about the chicken and the egg. Of course, meditation has effects. Absolutely, it does. Um, but um, how do I put it? Yeah, I sometimes wonder um, the degree to which meditation uh, could be changed out for any other kind of uh, vehicle of self-reflection or contemplation. Uh, with similar developmental results. I don't think it would be exactly the same by any stretch. But in other words, what I'm trying to say is there are different kind of people that are drawn to meditation for different reasons. And I think sometimes people get out of meditation what they're looking for, you know, in a way. There's a certain sense in which some, you bring in, you bring something in with you, an, an aspiration or a hope or a personality type at the very least. Uh, for me, um, I would say... Um, it's, yeah, I mean, meditation to me seems seems is a a curiosity. I I do it. I enjoy it. I love it. It's a kind of way of exploring life, and, uh, the inner world, but also the outer world. The attentional skills of meditation 
that meditation does develop, uh, tends to develop, can be directed in, out, <laughs> you know, uh, at the very distinction of in and out, questioning that, examining that. So for me, it's this tremendous portal to the techniques of meditation and these tremendous portals to contact with experience and exploring life and so on. That being said, there are lots of other benefits that come from regular meditation that uh, seem to be uh, discussed a great deal, including in, in certain psychological and scientific literature. It's certainly very relaxing most of the time. Sometimes meditation is you know, not much fun, but generally it seems that the sitting, the being still, so on, seems to have a good relaxing effect. Um, they say it has some, uh, you know, changes to the brain structure and the, the sort of thickening of this area and all that sort of thing. I don't know if that's the truth. I haven't noticed that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not in the habit of measuring my the thickness of my <laughs> you know, gray matter. But uh, they they give you all these um, you know benefits and so on and whatever. So uh, for me, the meditation is a wonderful portal uh, to experience life. Mm -hmm. So it sort of springs from life. And back to life again. I love that. Yeah, that's such a beautiful explanation. It, it reminds me of the toroidal field. It's like out, in, and then it's this constant movement of the this frequency, the vibration. It's there. It's a, a, a forever existing. And then the in the meditation, you kind of tap into it. I love that. So now that we, you know, scientifically developing so fast, um, there are so many benefits, like you said, it increases the gray matter and so on and so forth, relaxation, so on and so forth. Um, so in the West, we have a very different relationship with the meditation. So we, we, I mean, we still, like, there are still so many areas that we don't conceptually get it. Uh, either because we don't understand, because there is no culture around it, like you said. If although some of us are very um, not for the religious practices, but somehow maybe we could, maybe they could be the the kind of the scaffolding, provide the scaffolding to really understand the processes of the meditation, like some of these religious practices. However, I know in the West now we've kind of becoming more individualistic. Um, that's how the, the life is kind of promoted and wired within us. And so I think mindfulness concept is what resonates with a lot of people. Um, sometimes, you know, like you and I, I'm sure like you also may be interested in the mystical experience side of it, which probably you have experienced. So did I. But there are people that just want to cope with their crazy life. They just want to do something, practice it through them. You know, coming from a mindfulness approach is kind of seems like the way forward in the West to get people to meditate and to really introduce meditation um, and cut the hours down. Like, you know, don't expect for one hour meditation if someone's really busy. Uh, working full-time jobs and running family, you know, children, you know, don't expect an hour, you know, but you can actually do it for five, ten minutes. Do you think that's going forward? How How is it changing the concept of meditation? What are your observations on that? Yeah, those very interesting points that you're bringing up. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the interesting things that seems... I, I don't particularly have the idea that I want to get anybody to meditate or convince people to meditate. Uh, I actually know people who have, who sort basically meditate, but they don't really say they do. They don't believe they do. Um, they go for a daily walk or something like that. And then if you ask them, I'm thinking of one particular person, they ask them, what do you do on your walk? And they'd say what they're doing. It's sort of it could it could you could uh, say well that's kind of, I mean you wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say to that to that to that person but you could say well that's a meditation technique actually what you're describing is a meditation technique I don't meditate no okay you don't call it meditation but um, other people have called that meditation so uh, you know but I love meditation and I'm very passionate about it and I enjoy doing it a lot 
so that's so if anyone wants to you know my my kind of idea is to share my enthusiasm and my passion for meditation with whoever is interested in it uh, so it's sort of the other way around they can find me um as opposed to uh, me sort of proselytizing saying everybody let's meditate i have been through proselytizing periods in my life uh not specifically to do with meditation um and uh you know i've i've grown out a little bit <laughs> or become too embarrassed by my previous proselytizing way to do that. So I don't uh, really see it that way. And interestingly enough, you, you're right. Uh, meditation, one of the ways I think in our culture we validate something is through things like scientific um, uh, ideas or scientific um, research and also therapeutic benefit. So one of the ways in which meditation has been ported into the into the West, into America, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so on. Uh, around that time, uh, the people on the hippie trail came back. They needed jobs. They became psychology professors. They became therapists. It seems to be a certain type of person does that. And one of the ways we can say, well, you see, meditation's good for you. The science says so. And that's one way of valid, you know, evaluating, if you want, the effects of meditation. And I think it's very valid and interesting. Uh, per personally, um, well, and then also for therapeutic reasons to say, well, I'm a, I interviewed somebody on my podcast recently who's a, who's a Buddhist psychotherapist, which wow. I find, yeah, I find that very strange combination personally, but, mm. uh, it's a very popular combination, especially in the States. Um, so, uh, there seems to be that idea. So yeah, a lot of, but you know, for many, many people, I think, who turn to meditation for therapy, uh, meditation can be used therapeutically, um, it seems. Meditation can also be used uh, to optimize concentration uh, and so on. Meditation can be used for relaxation purposes. Meditation can be used to pursue the goals of spiritual enlightenment or oneness with God and these sorts of uh, aims that are talked about in the religious traditions, uh, realization of the nature of mind or whatever, you know, this sort of stuff. So you can use it a lot of different ways. Um, I think um, meditation, however, has its limits, especially therapeutically. Uh, yes, it can, it seems, be used to benefit um, uh, mental stress or mental health problems. Uh, but it can also, it seems, exacerbate those same problems. If you have a lot of trauma and turbulence and painful feelings inside, then meditation can um, bring you into more clear and uh, contact, sustained contact with that pain inside. That might be the method, that might be a good method to move through it, to actually face it, metabolize it, process it. But is meditation enough? It'll certainly bring you into contact with it. Is it enough to get through it without unnecessary damage to your psychological structure or your life and so on you know, it's hard to say so i think for those looking to meditation for a therapeutic benefit uh, a question i would i would ask is have you considered just getting a therapist or uh try, trying to get a counselor or something like that at least to um in tandem with one's meditation practice yeah, yeah. it's a little bit like that doesn't fix everything uh, meditation for sure and it's not I don't think a panacea it's sometimes been presented as a bit of a panacea we could say oh it's great for everything you know stress relief uh, you know hair loss I don't know if they've ever done that one yet but you know everything right so there's lots of different they, they tell us it's great for a lot of things uh, but uh, yeah so I don't know about that yeah uh, these are great insights Steve, thank you. So I actually have a background in somatic experiencing. Right. And, and you are absolutely right. When we are treating people with deep trauma or developmental trauma, emotional trauma, we actually ask them to have someone to facilitate for them while they're meditating because it can activate a lot of trauma. Right. So this is actually quite well known in the um, somatic experiencing world, people who are trained in working with people with deep trauma. So instead, we ask them to dip their toes in by just slowly, you know, coming into it, just closing their eyes for a few minutes and focusing on the breath for two minutes and then kind of increasing it every, you know, every day, every other day, just kind of building capacity slowly. 
and have someone there, a therapist to help you guide through. It's so important that you mentioned that. It's true. And this is what I'm also talking about earlier when I said in the West, we kind of entered this space of meditation through mindfulness because that kind of validates how important it is and valuable. And if you look at some of the online entrepreneurs, the, the entrepreneurial world out there online, um, they have these checklists, you know, the rituals, checklists. Every entrepreneur, every online entrepreneur should have a checklist. And that checklist consists of meditation, cold showers, bulletproof coffee, affirmations, gratitude, diary, you know, like, you know, the list, the common list. So meditation is always there. And it's always 10 minutes. First thing, 10 minutes, you know, you do your uh, affirmations, 10 minutes movement, 10 minutes meditation. Like, it's crazy how, it can, he, how meditation made its, its way to that list of entrepreneurs and like I said to you like they're not interested in 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 the depth of meditation approach because for me meditation is a is a prayer it's a way of life it's I don't know how to describe it it's more than just doesn't it's not on my list to do list at all it's the way to be in a way and I feel that because we lack the culture, just like we lack culture around psychedelics, sometimes in the West, we kind of create these little concepts, like you said, it's good for everything, right? An entrepreneur should always meditate 10 minutes with an eye shade every morning, that kind of mm -hmm. structure and a framework. I find that really interesting. But then again, it could be a great way to enter into the space. Who knows, right? Yeah, it's, it's neutral. It's like... Um... It's like you know martial arts. You can learn martial arts to get fit. You can learn go to a martial arts class to uh, protect yourself. You can go to a martial arts class to you know learn to beat somebody up, and then you go and beat somebody up. Uh, you can do it for the competition. You can do it for the character development, uh, etc. You can do it for the stress relief. You know, it's pretty yeah. pretty it can be pretty stress relief. You know, run around kicking and so on could be quite fun so there's lots of different reasons for martial arts so it was martial arts it's like well no it's about this well maybe other people use it for this but i don't have a problem with people using meditation for you know i mean people are going to do whatever they want with it right and uh, yeah. i think it's uh it's, it's cool i mean the important the, from a meditation teaching point of view one of the important things is to uh just you know deliver clear uh if you're teaching meditation clear instruction and uh, be you know equipped to offer support and so on and know how to refer people to their counselors and so on if they need it and such etc but uh, as for what they do with it i think there are as many reasons there as there are techniques yeah for sure mm -hmm. and and let's dive into your asset and experience i really want to hear how long you were there and how did you end up doing workshops at slm well um i have taught at Esalen for several years, um, <clears throat> sometimes a couple of times, been there a couple of times. Well, uh, I've, uh, for the last five, six years now, taught a great deal with uh, my teaching partner, business partner, Michaela Bohem. And uh, she's a counselor and also she teaches various different movement methods. You might be interested actually in her nonlinear movement method. So it works with trauma release and it's, these sorts of things, quite interesting. I'll send you a link about it. But anyway, uh, and so uh, she'd been teaching at Esalen uh, for a couple of years before we started working together. And then we started working together and collaborating. And so I ended up teaching there. That was how it ended up happening. Uh, I've also uh, participated in, uh, they do not only workshops, but they also do kind of studies and things there. And there's a guy called Mikey Siegel, uh, consciousness hacking guy, uh, very interesting uh, chap and he was developing uh, some, some sort of technologies which I could go into if you like but it's, it's technologies to do with intimacy and enhancing intimacy and so we went there and taught for a few days uh, using his technology sort of sitting with him and thinking okay how can we combine what we know about intimacy training and you know uh, human relationships and so on uh, with this technology and and, and you run experiments with, with volunteers so we did that for, for a few days. Um, so that sort of thing happens there as well. Uh, yeah, so all kind of things. Te taught a lot of workshops there over the last five, six years um, and also participated in studies like we did with Mikey Siegel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, Esalen is a place of 
um, I, I think it's the um, temple of innovation. It's, it's, it was the first place for, you know, when in the 50s, I think. Uh, is it true that I'm sure you know contacts from Esalen? Is it true that they used to run plant medicine ceremonies, psychedelic uh, ceremonies? And obviously it was all underground back in the day and it had to come under uh, meditation workshops and, and other kind of like movement yoga retreats type of thing. Uh, well, I don't know uh, about that, but I would, it wouldn't surprise me given given the time and, and the, uh, the time period. I mean, there was, of course, a time when LSD, for example, was legal and was he heavily used in experimentation. People like Stanislav Grof, who was who who was very uh, prominent uh, faculty member of Esalen, um, used LSD in his experimental research. And we know, you know, well, of course, I mean, I'm not saying anything shocking here. Loads of people were taking LSD in those days and it wasn't illegal actually <clears throat> until a certain point. <clears throat> and of course, even after it became illegal, I expect some people still may have experimented with uh, such things, but certainly before it was legal, I think it was widely, widely used um, yeah. in that scene at Esalen itself. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's lots of, documents i mean you hear stories and things about people saying things but i i have not looked into it thoroughly yeah yeah no absolutely for sure no one but, no yeah. one offered me any lsd when i was there <laughs> yeah for sure yeah i'm sure time has changed but yeah it still stands strong yeah. as as a place to explore human potential and there are beautiful studies i know i'm aware of workshops that are happening there meditation training and all that so it's great um so now let's go into the myths. Like as a meditation teacher, what are the most hilarious things that you hear about meditation that you find yourself repeatedly trying to tell people or explain? I know you rather demonstrate, but I'm sure there are hilarious moments where people, you, you are encountering people, what they think about meditation. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that I come across occasionally is, of course, I mentioned before that there is such a diverse array of meditation approaches and techniques, not only what to do with your attention, but also, in a certain sense, the philosophical approach of techniques and traditions is different. And so some techniques are all about relaxing or letting go or passively watching phenomena and experience and so on. But there are other techniques where you actually try to generate positive feelings or positive visualizations, or you use a, a mantra or something like that. So there's act more active and there's more passive kinds, there's meditate, which can seem to be conflicting each other. And sometimes in fact are conflicting with each other, contradicting each other. Um, and, Historically, occasionally, it has been the case uh, that sometimes techniques develop in reaction to the prevalent technique of the day. Every technique has its downsides, its potential pitfalls, right? And so uh, sometimes a critic will come, an innovator, and develop something in reaction to that. And then what they develop becomes the mainstream. And then someone else will develop something in reaction to that. And <clears throat> on it goes. There are all kind of different techniques like that, and plus different views. Some people, if we talk a bit more from the religious side, will say you should be trying to get enlightened, trying to wake up. Other people will say that you, in fact, trying to wake up and trying to get enlightened is reinforcing the very problem of seeking and grasping. And what you should do is just realize you're already enlightened and sit to express that. So, you know, these sorts of, they're, they're different views and they have, there are the view, views that have historically been at odds and had debates and arguments. So sometimes I think people don't understand that context and so therefore are confused when they hear one teacher very clearly saying, don't do anything, doing is the problem, drop all doing. And then another teacher will, will say to focus on the breath, for example, well, that's kind of doing, isn't it? Or another teacher will say, scan the body. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, I'm doing something when I'm doing that, right? So. And and sometimes those teachers don't, for whatever reason, there's no time, or they, or they, or they don't hold the view uh, of this. They don't show the context. Maybe that um, it's one view among other views, and so, uh, or they believe really that this is the best way. So people hear that and they come across that, and they can be very confused. And they may come to me and say, "Well, I've heard this from this person, and I've heard that from the other person, and I don't know what to do." Or I've been sitting here not doing for five years, and um, I'm nervous to 
do something in my meditation because isn't that the problem aren't i just reinforcing um the craving that's the problem and all this so these sorts of things um can uh, uh, should we say lack of awareness of the context of where these techniques come from and that they are very often loaded with worldviews they do come certainly in the way they're taught uh, and sometimes maybe even in the structure of the technique uh, implied or explicit worldviews or philosophical systems um, uh, they come along with the techniques and people think they're just learning to meditate to release stress but they're getting stealth buddhism or they're getting stealth advaita vedanta or something like that at the same time and they don't realize it and uh, sometimes the teacher doesn't really realize it either perhaps mm -hmm. they are unaware of it themselves um, or they are aware and you know these sorts of mis misunderstandings i think quite common mm -hmm. i love that i'm just i kind of picked up what you just said there sometimes the teacher is not aware oh yeah. my god this is so huge peak in our process of awareness because awareness for me is everything without it nothing shifts changes nothing transforms <clears throat> and i'm sure you met in your time a lot of meditation teachers who are totally unaware but they're kind of doing everything like a mechanical way because they've been taught that way do you meet people like that where they're just kind of mechanical in their teaching guiding um, I can't say anyone comes to mind, but I think it's definitely a possibility. And we all have that possibility because, of course, we're all we all have our biases. We all have our unconscious assumptions and our conscious assumptions. Um, we have our ways of looking at things that, um, you know, for instance, I mentioned when I was apprenticed to this Christian mystic for a period of time, that was probably <clears throat> my most devout phase in terms of being a Christian. Uh, I was really at, at times insufferably, de insufferably devout. <laughs> I really thought the Christian view, such not that there is just one, right, which I didn't understand at the time really either, but the, the, the view that I had, right, I thought that was the, the right answer uh, because it answered everything. You could more or less say anything to me and I'd have a way of interpreting it or fitting it into the worldview that I had. But what I was unaware of was that the worldview I had was resting on certain foundational assumptions. There were certain things that, I hadn't really examined very closely, I'd accepted. And if you accept sort of premise A, premise B, premise C, then combined, that, that can make a closed worldview. And that's what I had. And as I thought more deeply and uh, practiced more and ex explored more experientially as well as intellectually, I, I began to hit upon those assumptions and question them. And when I started to question those assumptions, then the entire uh, closed system itself becomes questioned and that's you know that's the if you want the root out of fundamentalism but i was unaware of those assumptions um i had not questioned them when i began to question them uh it, it had an effect of course and i think we also have our biases this is known of course well in the academic circles in scientific circles we have our biases and we have to account for our biases both the ones that we um are aware of say this is my belief this is what i think it's not a problem to have a belief or to think something or have a have a working theory or uh, that's not a problem especially if it's conscious if you know that you're operating sort of with these assumptions you have to have some assumptions but it's ideal if we can turf them up and examine them why questions like why are we meditating why are you meditating or what do you think you're doing when you're meditating where are you trying to go get to or not get to depending on your philosophical view, things like that. So what do, is it that you think you're doing? There are there are going to be reasons there, even if we're not aware of them. One of my teachers, Godfrey Devereaux, used to say, your assumptions about your practice will guide your practice, even, and then he sometimes says, especially if they're unconscious. Wow. So that's when I say sometimes teachers are not aware. I'm not really thinking of a particular person or criticizing anybody. It's also myself. I also have to be aware that there are certain things that assumptions that I'm aware of that I'm operating on. Um, and th th that's you know something. But I'm also undoubtedly there are layers of unconscious assumption that might be I might be unaware of. And if I'm not careful, I don't, if I don't account for that, then I can put that that on my on the student. I can put that on the, the student who's learning the meditation that I may be unaware that I'm doing that or I will be unaware that I'm doing it. So I have to account for 
the biases that I can see and the biases that I can't see. Yeah. Wow, powerful insights. Thank you. I remember having a friend in the tribe group when I was uh, coaching for London Real, and once I asked him if he can, uh, young guy, young member, uh, very into the meditation practices, and I said to him, "Can you, um, can you uh, recommend me some books regards to um, meditation or mindful?" I think I can't remember what it was exactly. And he said, "I I can't because I may be, I may be giving you something that." that you, you know it's useless to you it might be totally because based on my own um unconscious or conscious or like you said assumptions or just because it's something i believe in even a book title he was so careful not to share things like that and he always said it's your path it's your experience it's you need to kind of dig in that i found that really interesting at the time because if you look at some of the facebook groups there are so many self-improvement self books Facebook groups, and then you always come across these posts. People say, "What's your book? The book that changed your life?" and mm -hmm. and then there's like two hundred recommendations. It's easy for us to say, right? This is the book that changed my life, and you should read it too. That's yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's easy to. Say. I've got a lot of books, as you can see. I really like books, and uh, <laughs> so yeah, I can make a long list <laughs> for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. So I find it really valuable what you said there, that we need to be totally conscious or at least make effort, or at least, I know there is a self-deception at play that we have these, you know, we are, you know, receiving organisms. It's hard to be conscious at all times. And I think, um, yeah, it's so complex at the same time. How do we, how do we know this is it? This is it it, it kind of reminds me of the, you know the new age, um, if you believe you're a god, then you are. If you believe you're not, then you're not. Mm -hmm. um, if you believe you deserve a mansion, then you do. If you don't, you don't. It's like if you believe you're right, you're right. If you don't, you're not type of thing. I find this so interesting because that kind of drives a lot of things, right? It manifests and it kind of dri drives a lot of the this physical realm that we're experiencing, which is kind of scary at the same time. Like it's almost like I'm so watchful of my words lately it's like um, caroline my my with she would say you know you're casting a spell the way you speak it's like wow my god it is too complex to be to to grasp all of that and more but yeah so um what would your advice would be steve for anyone who's trying to get into the meditation you know, trying to, especially with this post-pandemic world, what are your observations? What is actually going on right now? Well, to answer the first question, advice, um, I think my advice would be very sort of similar to what your friend said, actually, um, although I'd be a little less, um, you know, I don't think I'd be able to restrain uh, book recommendations in general because I like books a lot. Uh, so he has a lot of discipline. But I'd say, yeah, to follow, follow uh, if someone's interested in meditation, let's say, to follow, follow the int your interest and oh, look, look around and try different things. And, uh, you know, very often we, we are very attached to the first coherent presentation of a topic that we encounter. So you come across a very good teacher from this point of view and uh, what it makes sense to you because it's a coherent argument. And then you assume that that's that's sort of the best way or that's the only way. And uh, you might be surprised that actually there's lots of different ways to look at this topic and they all ha have, a, have their own kind of internal rationale. And so it's nice to uh, to look around a little bit um, and try different things and, you know, and to actually really try them just really give a five minute meditation or something like that. Try out different techniques and explore. I think that's really good. And eventually as you explore and you try different things and um, uh, you know, two, three different things, or maybe if you're, you're somebody like me, you try lots of different things. And eventually, you know, you find the sorts of things that you like and that work for you. And, and, and then you practice those with somewhat more consistency. I think the, um, we're often told we should meditate regularly. And I actually think that's true. And like I said, I have an online course um, that I just ran all about that, get an online, uh, get an online, uh, get a daily practice was what it was called. And that's all about that. How to establish a regular practice. Cause it's very often 
bad advice given about that. But on the other hand, there is this sort of courting phase uh, where you try things out and you know you meditate intermittently and you're just sort of sampling it. I think that's actually a really good phase as well. Very intelligent. People are a bit reluctant just to dive into. Then you come to your first class and they say, "Okay, you've got to meditate every day," and so on and so forth. I think it's a bit much. When you're ready to, uh, then then you, that's something you you attempt to do. Uh, but before you're ready to, I think it's quite all right to do some window shopping and some sampling. You know. I love that. Yes, I love that. Yeah, find your own flow. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Again, this comes back to how connected we are in the West. Well, in globally, I, I think, I think um, we're moving far away from this specific issue that we experience in the West, which is disconnection. I always say we live neck above. But I think this is becoming a global problem now. I don't know, with, with everything that is the uncertainty and the challenges. So the second question was like, what do you think is actually happening in, the, in this post-pandemic? Well, actually still in pandemic that we're in. Well, one of the things that seems to be happening because of the, that I've noticed from what people are telling me, um, is that things like, let's say people already who are meditating have a meditation practice it's like, here's a stress test because it you know especially at the beginning and, and for many people ongoingly it's quite stressful it's a lot unknown is stressful of course the unknown is or can be stressful you're not sure like you said if you should be out there buying lots of toilet roll or not or uh, what can you do? Uh, should you wear a mask uh, in this place or that place? And uh, how is your business going to survive, uh, etc.? Will you have a job? Um, you know, are you going to get sick? And how bad is it going to be? There's many unknowns. Are your loved ones going to get sick? So all this sort of unknowns could be quite stressful. And of course, stressful and chaotic, difficult situations. In a certain sense, it's the uh, uh, you know specialty of uh meditation it's sort of like ah you know we have we have an app for that as they say you know <laughs> so uh i think it's been interesting to hear from a lot of practitioners of meditation that it's like okay here, here's a stress test now we'll see or a meditation of course we all face individual crises and difficulties but here in a sort of collective difficulty you know even those who had a relatively relaxed life are now faced with some degree of stress. So um, I've noticed that people are saying, okay, I feel like I'm really glad I have a meditation practice because I can see it's working. In day-to-day -day life, you don't always notice it as much if, if life is going well. But certainly when you have a shock or a crisis, um, I've heard people saying that they've, they've been glad of their practice in that time. And I think it's also true that people who haven't meditated or have been just curious about it have been investigating it more to help relieve the stress. Uh, to help deal with the uncertainty and also because those of us in lockdown uh, people have had more time you know you take up zumba you learn you learn to whatever uh do tango online and you know people learning all this stuff as and people are trying to learn a bit of meditation they're learning taking their third attempt at rosetta sounds sounds spanish <laughs> stuff like that. so yeah it's an interesting uh time from a meditation point of view from a meditation point of view it's business as usual business as usual Oh, yeah. crisis, yep. Pain, fear, uncertainty. These are um, not unknown conditions to human beings, whether it's a personal crisis or a collective one. And meditation has certainly been fertilized in the soil of those times, of those situations, because there have also been uh, terrible times in the past. And meditation, aside from being one of the great hobbies of human beings to explore life, uh, has also been employed uh, in times of difficulty. So I think we're, we're perhaps seeing some of that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love it. I think a lot of people are being open. They're far more open to the practice than ever before now. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for sharing all your insights, Steve. This has been amazing. Any closing comments as we're coming towards the end of our conversation? Oh, just to say thank you for having me on again, Susan, onto your uh, fireside chats. There is actually, oh, that's the wrong way. There is actually a fire back there. <laughs> My fire on the boat is going. So mm -hmm. this really is literally a fireside chat. Yeah, and it's great what you're doing with your group. 
uh, you know, getting people together, meditating like this. It's so wonderful. So thank you for all your good work. Oh, thank you. And would would be an honor to have you on one of our gatherings because we do meditation on Zoom uh, weekly as yeah. well. I think it would yeah. be lovely to have you. I should probably mention my site is guruviking.com, www.guruviking.com. And I podcast, Guru Viking podcast. And I interview all kinds of interesting people, a lot of meditation-y kind of people, and some scholars also, and uh, linguists, and all kinds of weird and wonderful characters. So Guru Viking podcast as well. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm going to add that to the conversation notes as Thank soon you. as I end the live. And yeah, forever grateful. Honestly, it's just so precious to meet people like you who are walking similar paths to myself and to the members of our group. I think I find that we're in this together and doesn't matter what level we are. And I love meditation because it can bring all levels together. And uh, recently I'm practicing the idea that everyone is our teacher and we are everybody's teacher. So it's like reciprocated learning and teaching at the same time coming together. It's so magical, so profound. So thank you for your commitment to the work and everything you do. It's just so inspirational. Thank you, Susan. And we'll be in touch very soon. Thank you. So everybody, uh, if you tuned in, if you tuned in now, please watch from the beginning. This has been an eye-opener. This conversation is very profound. Steve is our meditation guru. He's the teacher and someone that I resonate with a lot and I follow his teachings. So I'll be adding his links to the conversation notes and I'll see you guys on the next one. Bye for now. Much love.